This is Look West, a podcast from California's Assembly Democrats. Dotson was out questioned the greatest of all time. Assemblymember Todd Gloria's words of praise for E. Dotson Wilson summarize how virtually everyone in the California State Capitol feels about the outgoing chief clerk of the state assembly. I'm Don Andrews with Look West. After 27 years at the helm, few call him Mr. Wilson. Around the Capitol, he's simply known as Dotson. Dotson is the assembly. This is an institution, and he's an institution. Majority Leader Ian Calderon knows Dotson's retirement is the end of an era. To be losing him is a huge loss to this body, to this legislature, to the people of California. Dotson has been the man who kept the state assembly on task and following the rules since he was chosen to be chief clerk and parliamentarian by Speaker Willie Brown. Every speaker since has chosen Dotson to be their chief clerk. He's worked with hundreds of assembly members over those years. Look West spoke with some of the current lawmakers and each praised his skill, knowledge, and professionalism. Current speaker, Anthony Rendon. It's been the thrill of a lifetime to work with him. There's a certain continuity and a sense of history when you're with him. And you think of all that he's seen and uh, all that the institution's been through since he's been here. It's been fantastic. Assistant Pro Tem, Rebecca Bauer-Kahan. Dodson taught me everything I know. He has been an incredible calming force in this body. And I also think that what I want to acknowledge is he has made us better. His respect for the body and the work we do is so apparent that I think it makes everybody who sits here every day better and stronger. And I hope that we carry that with us as he leaves. Assemblymember Chris Holden says legend is the word he uses to describe Dotson. When I joined the assembly, um, I started as a part of the, uh, the floor unit and um, assistant majority leader and then ultimately majority leader. So my interaction with him was quite constant. And as I was learning my job, he was very helpful to help me understand the dynamics of majority leader and the, um, uh, the presiding officer and how you kind of work together um, and develop a sense of continuity to keep the floor moving. Um, so he, I will say this, he has um, really left his mark. Assemblymember Autumn Burke's assessment, Dotson made everyone who served in the assembly a better lawmaker. He has been um, a great advocate, not just not just for members, but also for the rules. And as someone who doesn't always follow the rules, I, he has been a great influence on me and has provided me with the respect for the institution um, that I sometimes need reminding of. <laughs> sometimes you need reminding of that the rules really bring great decorum to this place and really allow us to do the work that we come here to do that is so, so important. And without him, it's hard to imagine how we're going to do such good work and be so efficient about it. She also pointed out that Dotson, the first African-American in the country to hold the chief clerk post in a state legislature, became a role model for other African-Americans. He has been an incredible champion for African-American staff, not just uh, here on the assembly floor, but through the entire building. Um, And that is is something we're going to greatly miss. It's going to be a huge void for us here in the Capitol. Majority Leader Calderon says the respect for Dotson goes beyond race or political stature. 
He's respected and revered by everyone from both political parties. He's been able to develop relationships with both parties, Democrats and Republicans, and that is really important because what we do on the floor is the people's business. And when it comes to both sides, things can get heated. And what you need is somebody that both sides trust so that when there's a disagreement on a procedure or on a specific issue that comes up on a floor, there's somebody that you can talk to and someone that you trust. No matter what they say, there is no question from either side, okay, well, this is what Dotson says, and this is what we're going to do. Assemblymember Gloria says the praise for Dotson is not just political hyperbole. I wish every Californian could understand the level of service that he's provided to the state. It's really without equal. And, you know, often people in my line of work are prone for exaggeration, but that's hard to do when it comes to the service of Dotson Wilson to California. He has been exceptional to work with. I get to fill in occasionally as the Speaker Pro Tems presiding over these assembly meetings. And you know that when Dotson makes a ruling, you know that it's fair, it's impartial, uh, and most importantly, it's right. Dotson will leave his post early next month. In a moment, you'll hear from Dotson himself as we play back a conversation he had with current Speaker Pro Tem Kevin Mullen. When he leaves, Assemblymember Reggie Jones-Sawyer says he'll leave behind a challenge for everyone who still serves in the Assembly. He has integrity. He also gave us integrity. Once he's gone, that, that automatic symbol of integrity goes, then we're going to have to stand up to his level of integrity, and that's, that's a pretty high standard. Now let's sit down with Pro Tem Mullen and E. Dotson Wilson as they talk about his life, his service, and his legacy. After 27 years, E. Dotson Wilson, the legendary chief clerk of the California State Assembly, has announced his retirement. Dotson is the longest-serving clerk in the modern era, so he has made history here in this assembly chamber. Dotson has served under 13 speakers and leads a clerk's team in operation that is widely regarded as the gold standard of clerk's operations among the states. Dotson, it has been my honor to work closely with you in my role as Speaker Pro Tem, and I know how indispensable you have been to this institution and to the many presiding officers to whom you've provided wise parliamentary advice over the years. It's an honor to be with you and to have you provide a little bit of an oral history about your 27-year tenure, and congratulations on your retirement. Well, uh, thank you, uh, Speaker Pro Tem Mullen. Uh, it's been a real honor to work uh, with the members of the Assembly in the last uh, 13 speakers, but it's truly been an honor to work with you. Um, you have made uh, my job and our office's job that much uh, easier because of your professionalism, your respect for the institution, you know, and the fact that uh, you adhere to the democratic principles that are uh, critical uh, in a bicameral legislative body. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. And we had Dotson Day, a celebration of your career at the Capitol. What was that like? There were people from all over the state, people who have been touched by your work over these decades, all gathered together in this ornate chamber of the California State Assembly. <clears throat> You're not usually the focal point. You like to be sort of behind the scenes. What was that like to be uh, on the hot seat, if you will, uh, with all those uh, accolades being thrown? Well, I mean, I was very humbled by the, by the recognition that was spearheaded by you know the speaker uh, and his leadership team, as well as Republican leader Waldron's uh, support. So I appreciated that that bipartisan support. Uh, the real uh, benefit or uh, joy that I received from it is a number of uh, my friends who really are not involved in politics or the legislative process saying to me, "Oh, now I know what you do." So that that might have been the one you know the one upside. 
Uh, but I was very humbled by the by the recognition. Uh, did not expect that that level of of, of recognition and, and the accolades. I will admit that I did have one uh, expectation, and that would be to receive a framed resolution from the assembly. And I was fortunate enough to receive that framed resolution and so much more. So I was, quite frankly, very. Uh, very appreciative and, and, the and, and surprised in many ways. Yeah, the gallery was packed that day with uh, Dotson fans from uh, all over the state of California. So um, I'm, glad that you, I'm glad you mentioned that some of the folks learned about what you actually do. So for those uninitiated who are just tuning in uh, to this podcast for the first time, what is the chief clerk's role uh, in all of its facets? Well, you know, the chief, chief clerk's role, which is, is only able to to be implemented because of the extraordinary uh, staff that we have or our team of 30 individuals and then all of the, you know, extended staff operations, including the Rules Committee, Legislative Council, uh, legislative offices. Uh, In the Chief Clerk's Office, our main charge is to make sure that the legislative record is maintained with 100% accuracy. And the second key component of our office is to make sure that as the parliamentarian, uh, I, along with input from members of our staff, provide accurate information, including options for elected officials. And the key part when it comes to the parliamentary procedure, uh, Mr. Mullen, is to do it in a way where it is not only fair and balanced, but that whether it's a, a member in support of a piece of legislation or a member in opposition, that that member is um, provided the best information so that he or she can move forward and make decisions, whether it's in committee or on the, the floor. Because as the parliamentarian, we give advice to the members, whether they're in committee or on the floor, as well as the 1,200 some odd staff that work here in the, uh, in the assembly. So I want to dig in on some of those, those nuances of uh, parliamentary procedure and how you sort of balance all these competing interests in just a bit. But before we get there, I want to give a little bit of a biographical sketch. So where were you born and raised? Well, I was born in uh, Berkeley, California, and I was raised literally on the border of Albany and Berkeley. I was proud to say that I grew up in Albany, went to Albany schools, and uh, you know, because the racetrack, Golden Gate Fields, was, was uh, for the most part in our city, when I was growing up, uh, the school district, you know, was never wanting for resources, if you will. There you uh, go. It's a different different era in 2019, though. Yeah. And what did your parents do? So uh, both my parents, my both my parents uh, pursued uh, their educational goals actually long before I was born. Uh, they both graduated from uh, UC Berkeley. My father received a. Uh, his undergraduate degree as well as a master's degree in political science and my mother uh, received her master's degree from UC Berkeley they've you know once they met uh, you know they uh, you know they enjoyed a uh, a brief uh, but you know good marriage and then you know, my father passed away when I was uh, about two and a half years old yeah, so uh, and my father was uh, just you know in terms of his position he was the first uh, african-american insurance broker in the East Bay long before I was born, back in the hmm. 1940s. So where'd you go to high school? Uh, none other than Albany High School, the only <laughs> high school in, in Albany. And we had one of the smallest high schools 
in the state because our our school of uh, high school of 800 students also included the junior high. Huh. Uh, so 8th through 12th uh, yeah. was uh, the years for our high school. My graduating class had 100, 150 students. And you were a track and field guy? Uh, yes. I, uh, you know, my first love was, was baseball. But yeah. when I realized I wasn't going to be the center fielder for the, <laughs> for the Giants. And so fourth, a Giants fan, not an A's fan? Well, A's right behind the Giants. Okay. Giants are still number one, and then the A's coming <laughs> second. Uh, but what was most interesting, uh, you know, I was I would have played high school baseball, varsity baseball. I was, you know, on track to be on the varsity team, and yeah. by co- by coincidence, our uh, one of the track coaches urged me to come out for 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 track just to try to get a feel for it. And then we realized that you know I had some natural natural talent and kind of switched over to track and you know as a 15 year old i uh, ran some pretty fast times and nice. you know became pretty competitive in college uh college I ended up going to uh to ucla uh i was recruited out of high school by a guy by the name of tom telez who later would become one of the legendary track coaches in yeah. in u.s olympic history uh because not only did he coach a number of Olympians, I wasn't one of them, uh, when we were at UCLA, he later went on to the University of Houston and recruited and coached Carl Lewis. Wow. Um, and was Carl Lewis's coach throughout his career. So you were a, you were a Berkeley legacy, but you chose not to go Berkeley. You, you chose UCLA. But the, the hook was was the, the track uh, angle. Yeah, it was the track angle, but, al- but also the, I knew the track coach at, at UC Berkeley yeah. and the, you know, the athletic director. Dave Maggard, the track coach was was Irv Hunt, yeah. and what I appreciated about them is they said, "Look, um, you know, we've already committed some of our scholarships. We can mm-hmm. offer you a tuition mm-hmm. only scholarship, but I know that you want to get out of you know Northern California and you know spread your wings." And they provided me some great, uh, gave me some good advice. Nice, uh, even though I was you know in high school, uh, yeah. because we used to get on the bus and we'd go see, you know, the likes of. Uh, Lynn Swan, who everyone knows as is a great football player, but he was also a phenomenal uh, yeah. track athlete as a as a long jumper. Yeah, Sarah High School. That's yeah. right. So, um, what started firing your interest in politics? Before we started rolling here, you alluded to wanting to be a journalist uh, out of the gate. Something that's a ambition that you and I both shared. Uh, uh, out of college, but what uh, sort of turned you toward uh, a more of a political path? Well, that's a great question. I don't think I really uh, thought of it as so much as a political path, even though that's ultimately what it was. I looked at it uh, even as a teenager, realizing that public policy has an impact on everyone's life, and you know the importance of voting is you know is is, is so critical. And when I was in high school, there was a uh, a situation where uh, you know I was in I was invited to be the non-voting member of the the local school board. And the most exciting part about being on the you know being a non-voting member mm-hmm. is they had snacks at the meeting. So I'm like, <laughs> hey, you know, free snacks and <laughs> and sodas is worth going to there you, go. you know to the school board meetings. And uh, I had ironically met. Tommy Smith and, and Lee Evans around that same time because uh, I had a cousin who went to San Jose State 
and was there with Harry Edwards and Lee Evans and Tommy Smith. And uh, I got a call one day and I go up and right after they had participated in the uh, protest at the uh, Mexico Olympics, I got a chance to meet them and shake their hand. And I didn't think of them in the context, oh, I'm meeting these po political activists or anything along right. those lines. But shortly around that same time, we we're on the school board. And because even though we had a small school, we had a cluster of up and coming talented track athletes mm -hmm. uh, of our group. Uh, four of us ended up getting Division One scholarships of some sort. Wow. Uh, one of the guys ended up taking a football scholarship. Yeah. So that's a real cluster of uh, talent. Right. Yeah, we all lived within a mile of each other. And so, you know, I, uh, I'm on the school board and uh, kind of heard that Tommy Smith had interviewed for a job at our school as an assistant coach. And I said, oh, wow, that'd be great. I said, let's see what happens at the school board meeting. School mm -hmm. board signed off on the routine, you know, contract or whatever the paperwork was at the time. And then that offer was later rescinded because of pressure from the parents hmm. that, you know, when you look at it in the context of that era, right. they were concerned that uh, this, you know, Olymp Olympian uh, who had raised his fist in defiance of the American flag shouldn't be coaching at uh, wow. Albany High School. He, ends up, he ended up going to Ravenswood down down the road yeah. and coached, coached that, there. That was so a, that was a, a, that sparked my awakening. interest in politics. So that was an awakening for you. Yes, I mean, and and I, you know, and I had, I had grown up in a household where, where politics, and government, and uh, civil rights was all inter interconnected, right. and you know, my my parents who, uh, you know, were you know, uh, very interested in making sure that they provided you know quality of life for their family, they uh, when they went to purchase a home, in. Albany, North Berkeley, and they didn't get the opportunity to buy the house, they knew that, okay, the realtors were not going to sell the house to them, so they had a a, a lady who they knew, a friend of theirs, a Caucasian lady, buy the house and then quick claim it back to them. Wow. And fortunately, had the, the option to be able to do that. And, and, they, and they had done that in, with several other properties as well. Wow. And, and what years are we talking about here? That's like 1957. Yeah. Thereabouts, 1957-58. So you graduate from UCLA. Do you uh, immediately pursue work up here at the Capitol? What was that initial connection well, to I, this I, building? I, yeah, I'd like to say that it was just part of this grand plan that I had. <laughs> um, but it, it was it was uh, actually uh, a twist of fate. And, you know, mm -hmm. uh, I was, uh, after I graduated, graduated from UCLA, Went to you know Hastings College of the Law. When I graduated, I got a call from this lady that I knew, and she says, "You ought to apply for this Assembly Fellowship Program up in Sacramento. I know you have an interest in politics." And you know, after complaining about the weather and you know Sacramento and so forth, I applied for the program, and then uh, I got a call from May Lee Tom, who is very active in the API community to this day. She's I joke around and say you're ageless because. I remember you when you were the deputy CAO and later CAO in the assembly. She encouraged me to apply for the program, yeah. uh, assembly fellowship program. I applied uh, for the Senate and assembly program. I was uh, blessed to get accepted to the assembly program. And so I knew I'd get an opportunity to work in Sacramento. Um, so this is pre 
speakership. This, this Willie pre-speakership about a year before uh, Mr. Brown would become speaker. Sure. So you get hired on by Willie, mm-hmm. um, and you make your way up. Did I see deputy chief of staff? Is that right? Well, that that took a while to get there. That, that <laughs> doesn't that, happen right that away. That was ten years. <laughs> that was ten years away. I mean, I after I finished my fellowship, I was fortunate that uh, uh, Mr. Brown had hired me on his staff. Right at the same time, there was this speakership battle going on. So, who knew who would become the next speaker? And uh, five years earlier, uh, Mr. Brown had lost the speakership in the mid '70s to Leo McCarthy. So, who knew what would happen? But once the deal was cut, he became speaker based on a coalition between Democratic members and Republican members to break a, a Democratic caucus deadlock. Uh, I was. I was thinking, oh, maybe I, you know, he's going to have a lot of staff. Perhaps I can get on board with his staff and get that opportunity. And I said, why wait for him to ask me? I just let it, put it out there to him. And yeah. and I was fortunate that uh, I was offered uh, the opportunity to transition from his uh, his his staff in the late seventies, early eighties, so that when he was elected in December of nineteen eighty, I was I was hired as one yeah. of the first first members of his staff. So you see all the inner workings of the speaker's operation, but how do you then make the leap from that policy and political operation to the role of clerk and, and parliamentarian? That is, that seems to be a little bit of a leap. Well, what was the, tr- how did that happen? Well, it, it, it would seem like a leap, but it was more like just a, a couple inches uh, yeah. in terms of a jump. And the, the way it happened was, uh, you know, there was publications out there that made it sound like I was almost, oh, he was an assembly fellow and then he became the chief clerk. But actually it was a, a, a 14-year process right. uh, starting in 1979 and then culminating in 1992. And some of the advice that I've been given by some of my mentors is always look to, for a way you could make yourself more valuable. So I said, you know what, I'm going to learn parliamentary procedure and legislative procedure more importantly, uh, to help me do my job more effectively working on legislation. I didn't envision myself becoming the, the chief clerk, yeah. uh, and, and I, but I developed a strong working relationship with the chief clerk because I was, you know, I need to know how these, these rules work in this process so I can, it can help move the bills I'm working yeah. on. But the Republicans weren't so sure about a chief clerk with all of that Democratic background and pedigree, so did they... Was that a bit of a hurdle for you out of the gate to demonstrate publicly that you were going to be impartial and admit and administering uh, the rules and and the body's adherence to the rules? Was that a challenge for you? Uh, no, not really, because I, I had a clear understanding of what the role of the chief clerk was. Yeah. And uh, Speaker Brown knew I had an understanding of what the role of the chief clerk was. So I, I don't uh, don't think and he never even said. Oh yeah, you know when you when you become the chief clerk, you can you can twist and bend the rules uh, so that they only benefit me. Uh, I th- I think Mr. Brown nominated me because uh, of his commitment to the institution and you know, whatever uh, someone Democrat Republican, someone living in Northern California or Southern California thinks about Speaker Brown, he was always a stickler for the rules because he believed that if I if he knew the rules as well or better than you, he can use them, use them effectively. You know, he and I both shared an interest in, 
you know, in, in sports and, and competition. I never heard him once say, even though he was a Giants fan, uh, that a, a Giants baseball player should get more strikes um, or fewer balls or, you know, vice versa. You know, he always believed that, you know, if you're well prepared and even playing field, you'll prevail. You know, I knew that the Republicans would definitely challenge me. Tom McClintock, who was an expert on parliamentary procedure and the rules, uh, I knew that, you know, we'd be battling every day. And the ultimate compliment he paid to me before my first year was out, he paid me the ultimate compliment and said, um, when your name is up for re-election again, you have my support 100%. And that December, after I was elected in January of the, earlier that year, in December of 1992, uh, I was nominated by Jim Brulte and elected by uh, acclamation. How do you balance the fidelity to the rules, adherence to the rules, procedures, customs, history, tradition, with the fact that you now have this this democratic supermajority mm-hmm. and you know that on any contested ruling, for example, uh, uh, any contested procedural vote, Democrats are sure to prevail. So you've got this, you've got to balance the, the concerns and the needs of this majority with the, the underlying underpinning rules and customs and traditions of the House. So how do you sort of reconcile all of that together? Well, I'll just be honest with you, and I'm not just going to say this because you're sitting here. I'll say it for every one of your predecessors who served as Speaker Pro Tem, as well as every speaker that I've had the honor of working with, uh, from Speaker Brown to uh, to Speaker Rendon, uh, while they are interested in getting a certain result because of their position on policy or legislation, I have yet to encounter a speaker who said, oh, I want you to twist the rules so that we can get this result. If you have the votes, then you prevail. So it's it's like analogous using the our Giants, San Francisco Giants analogy. If you have a team that in the ninth inning has more runs than the other team, they win. If there's a tied vote, you go into extra innings. But at some point, the rules of the in this case, the the game of baseball will dictate that there's there's an outcome, right. and even though there's a super majority right now, uh, the the you know the speaker, the majority leader, and more significantly you, are committed to making sure that the process makes sense and that the process meets the needs of the members, but also stands the test of you know. A, you know, uh, you know, an equitable process. Um, I wanted to ask you about how this institution has changed over the 27 years. You saw preterm limits era. You saw post-term limits era. Now we have a new term limits era with a little bit of flexibility and longer uh, terms, uh, longer tenures, perhaps. Oh, absolutely. Longer tenures. Uh, sure. How has this institution changed and are we better off today, or are we better off uh, when you started, or is that impossible to say? Well, I don't, I don't know if it's uh, – it may be possible for me to say, but I don't know how accurate it is. Uh, you know, I recall when I first started working, you know, here, 
we would meet out in the temporary chambers in the uh, east side of the Capitol. We had no idea what the what the new newly restored you know Capitol would look like. And you know, when I look back at that era, I, it's somewhat funny to think about the temporary chamber and uh, where the where the members lounge is and the rules committee. And actually, your this office right here was part of the temporary speaker suite. Uh, and I never thought that there could be a greater day than to be in an office with wood paneling and shag carpets. I mean, I thought that was like <laughs> the pinnacle of success. I mean, I, the orange shag carpet, you know, and the 13, 13-inch 13 television that weighed like 100, 200 pounds. Uh, that was, that to me was, you know, was an ideal era. Uh, but the institution has definitely changed. And I think it's changed for the better, but that doesn't mean that the past was bad. That I think we we progressed in, in in many ways. The most significant changes that I've seen are, you know, really tied into uh, equal rights for Californians, uh, an improved environment. You can you can look at so many different issues, and, and California has been on the cutting edge of providing leadership on those on those issues. Uh, we think I can't help but think back to the. 1990s when no one even talked about marriage equality and they never talked about you know rights of the lgbtq community where now uh it's kind of taken for granted but when you look back even to 1990 let alone 1980 that's been a significant you know significant change changes that you know right. cut across uh you know ethnic racial religious uh, national origin line. So what advice do you have? Final couple of questions here and then we'll let you. Oh, I thought we'll we could have another out. hour. So I was getting warmed up. <laughs> <laughs> what advice do you have for your successor? Oh, my advice from, from my successor would be uh, to set as their number one goal how their tenure and the era when they are serving as the chief clerk and parliamentarian can enhance whatever was done before them. And to, to always treat each day as if it's your last, uh, because we're in an at-will system. And to remain committed to providing the members, the speaker, Republican leader, with the best advice that serves the interest of the institution. And to the extent that's not the popular answer, it's probably the right answer, because if that's the focal, the focus of that individual, they won't be focused on what answer do they want to hear, but what answer, what response, what advice is in the best interest of the institution. What would your message be to young people today in this building who um, are just getting a taste of public service? What would your message be to them about the value of a public service career? Well, uh, well the value of a public service career is that depending on what you do, you can have an impact on the process. You can have a, a, a long-lasting uh, effect on, on what occurs. I mean... One of the bills that I'd worked on uh, when I worked in Speaker Brown's office was a bill to require high school students to have a C average to participate in extracurricular activities. That 
to me, was something that I can always look back and say, look, I worked on that legislation, worked on hosts of other bills as well. But what I've learned, what I learned working in this building is there's there's two things that you can always control. Your reputation and your integrity. And if you understand that, you can be political, you can be a policy wonk. It doesn't it doesn't really matter because even people that may use you to get from point A to point Z and you're not doing the right thing, even they'll look back at you at one at some point in time and not re, and not respect you. And confidentiality is perhaps the key. Uh, uh, Got to learn how to keep a secret, <laughs> and you have to and you have to learn. That, remember that every confidant has a confidant. So you keep that information to yourself. And somebody, when I was earlier, uh, when I spoke spoke earlier with the students, they said, "Oh." going to write a book someday. I said, maybe a children's book, but I would never write a book about my experience here because it would require me to breach confidential communications. And anything I learned behind closed doors, whether it was two years ago or 25 years ago, that information remains behind closed doors. It can be juicy, though. Yeah. <laughs> I got some. I have some juicy stories. I just can't tell you. <laughs> so, what will you miss most about this place? Well, uh, I'll quite honestly uh, miss miss the people, miss the interaction uh, with the members and, and with the staff. Uh, in the chief clerk's office, we have the, you know, we have a, a front row seat. Uh, as I mentioned to one of our staff members, one of my one of our colleagues, I say it's like we're in the dugout. And you know we we get to we get to interact with the members, but we're not on the team as a member, but we get to interact with them with from the dugout or front row seat. Uh, you know, quite honestly, I'll, I'll miss interacting with you, uh, interact miss interacting with the speaker, Republican leader, majority leader, and all the members. And you know, the opportunity that I had at the close of my career to interact with with members, and you know, they had asked for you know. A private opportunity to take pictures and uh, reflect. That to me was uh, is what I'll what I'll miss the most. Uh, but whatever I miss, I'll be able to reflect back in a positive way because of the fond memories I've had uh, working here in the California Legislature, the fifth largest economy in the world and the greatest state in our union. Well, this institution will miss you. And I'm grateful for your taking the time to share a few of your memories and your wisdom with us. E. Dotson Wilson, the legendary chief clerk of the California State Assembly. Well, thank you, sir. Thank you. The Look West podcast is produced by the California Assembly Democrats. Please subscribe and rate this show wherever you get your favorite podcasts. And when you think of California and politics, remember to look west. <laughs>